Welcome to this week's episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today we will explore the consequences of a loss of the interaction between mutant calreticulin and another ER resident protein, and how this may promote myeloproliferative neoplasms. The role of a calcium-induced transcription factor in driving diffuse large B-cell lymphoma signaling and a comparison of two therapies for standard risk-acute graft-versus-host disease. Calreticulin, also referred to as CalR, is an endoplasmic reticulum chaperone protein that is mutated in approximately 20 to 25% of myeloproliferative neoplasms. Thus far, in an effort to understand its mechanism of oncogenicity, the focus of study has been on the aberrant protein interactions that mutant CalR gains, particularly its formation of a molecular complex with the thrombopoietin receptor, C-MIPL. However, there are reports that mutant CalR also loses protein-protein interactions found in wild-type CalR. These observations inspired Dubuduo and colleagues to take a different approach. Described in the recent article, Defective Interaction of Mutant Calreticulin and SOCE in Megokaryocytes from Patients with Myeloproliferative Neoplasms, published in Blood Journal. This team focused on investigating the consequences of losing interactions between mutant CalR and another ER resident protein, ERP57, a member of the protein disulfide isomerase family. In MPN, mutations in CalR occur as heterozygous insertions and or deletions in the last coding exon. The end result is the generation of a novel mutant-specific C-terminal peptide, with features that are shared across all mutations. CalR mutations are classified as type 1 or type 2, depending on the number of negatively charged amino acids that are eliminated. The C-terminus of mutant CalR differs in two main ways from the wild-type C-terminus. The mutant has a positive electrostatic charge, in contrast to wild-type CalR, which is negatively charged. Second, there is a loss of calcium binding sites in the mutant CalR. In an innovative approach, the authors investigated calcium signaling in human megakaryocytes, derived from normal donors and from MPN patients with CalR mutations. The authors went on to conclude that megakaryocytes with mutant CalR are more proliferative, at least in part, as a consequence of increased store-operated calcium entry or SOCE. This occurs because there is a loss of normal CalR protein binding interactions in the ER with ERP57 and the calcium sensor STIM1. Accordingly, inhibiting SOCE and or other calcium regulatory pathways may represent a therapeutic vulnerability in mutant CalR-driven MPN. The novel concept and use of primary human megakaryocytes for a large number of the experiments was a strong aspect of the study. A limitation was that all work was performed in vitro. An important next step will be to use preclinical models of MPN with mutant CalR in order to test the impact of inhibiting calcium regulatory pathways in vivo. By conducting this type of investigation, 
we could determine if CalR mutant stem cells expressing the thrombopoietin receptor are preferentially sensitive to SOCE inhibition, and if this would blunt the development of MPN. Although type 1 and type 2 CalR mutations generate a common mutant-specific C-terminal peptide, MPN patients with CalR type 1 mutations have a worse prognosis. It's important to note that the study of Debutuo et al. did not detect substantial differences between type 1 and type 2 CalR mutations with respect to calcium signaling or sensitivity to SOCE inhibition. Some may find this surprising, given that the type 1 mutation results in the loss of several calcium binding sites. However, Further studies may reveal subtle differences in calcium signaling between type 1 and type 2 CalR mutations that might account for these differences. We are advancing rapidly in regard to our understanding of the causes of myeloproliferative neoplasms, and thankfully, the study by Debutuo and colleagues offers an important contribution to the field and opens up new areas of investigation focused on the role of calcium regulatory pathways. Future work is needed to take advantage of this new mechanistic insight and to exploit it for therapeutic benefit to ensure patients with myeloproliferative neoplasms experience longer, healthier lives. Next up, we'll discuss new insights into what drives diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, referred to as DLBCL which is the most common form of non-Hodgkin lymphoma. DLBCL can be divided into subtypes based on differences in gene expression. Activated B-cell-like, or ABC, is the more clinically aggressive subtype of DLBCL, with an average survival rate of approximately 40%. In hopes of detecting any potential therapeutic vulnerability, there has been increasing effort to identify signaling pathways in ABC-type DLBCL that can be targeted therapeutically. Increased activity of the NF-kappa-B pathway is a known hallmark of ABC-type DLBCL. However, as reported by Bucher et al. in their recent Blood Journal article, targeting chronic NFAT activation with calcineurin inhibitors in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma there is another activated signaling pathway that operates in cell line models of ABC-type DLBCL by a mechanism that is distinct from dysregulated NF-kappa-B signaling. As described in the article, the authors discovered that the transcription factor, nuclear factor of activated T-cells, abbreviated as NFAT, is more active in ABC-type DLBCL cell lines. NFAT is regulated by the phosphatase calcineurin, whose activity is controlled by intracellular calcium. When NFAT is dephosphorylated by calcineurin, it can enter the nucleus and control transcription. Inhibition of calcineurin led to reduced activity of NFAT and was selectively toxic to ABC-type DLBCL. Bucher and colleagues meticulously expand this finding by demonstrating that NFAT activity in ABC-type DLBCL was largely independent of B-cell antigen receptor signaling. They also identified several gene targets of NFAT activity that mediate a pro-survival effect. Specifically, the authors discovered that NFAT promoted the expression of the transcription factor June and cytokines IL-6 and IL-10. June is a member of the AP1 family of transcription factors, which are active in ABC-DLBCL. Additionally, production and autocrine activity of IL-6 and IL-10 
have already been implicated in promoting survival of ABC-type DLBCL cell lines. In general, the results presented by Bucher and colleagues suggest that blockade of calcineurin signaling should be further explored in preclinical studies of ABC-DLBCL. However, something we should consider in this approach is the potential of calcineurin-directed therapy to suppress T-cell activation. This could inhibit immune responses to lymphoma, which may be an important part of clearing disease during conventional therapy or when patients receive immunotherapy. Future studies could determine whether there are specific factors controlling NFAT signaling in B-cells as opposed to T-cells that could be specifically targeted to avoid the T-cell immunosuppression caused by calcineurin inhibitors. In any case, further research is needed to increase our understanding and present more treatment options for patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Acute graft-versus-host disease, or GVHD, frequently occurs after allogeneic hematopoietic cell transplant and remains an important cause of early mortality. Treatment with high-dose corticosteroids is effective in about half of the patients with acute GVHD. Unfortunately, these treatments also have significant toxicities. Clinical and blood biomarker-based tools have been used to develop and validate an algorithm that identifies acute GVHD patients who have a higher likelihood of an initial response to steroid treatment and lower risk of mortality. These tools include the Minnesota GVHD Risk Score, which uses organ involvement and severity to identify standard versus high-risk status, and the Ann Arbor Biomarker Risk, which is based on two serum biomarkers. Several clinical trials have examined varying initial steroid doses according to the severity of acute GVHD. However, what was lacking was a prospective multi-center trial that employed a clinical and biomarker-based approach for risk-adapted GVHD therapy. The study to address this gap, randomized multi-center trial of seromolus versus prednisone as initial therapy for standard risk-acute GVHD, the BMT-CTN-1501 trial was recently published in Blood Journal by Pedala et al. It reports the results from a new trial conducted by the Blood and Marrow Transplant Clinical Trials Network. This was an open-label, randomized Phase II study, which utilized clinical and biomarker findings to identify patients with a standard-risk acute GVHD profile. Patients in the standard risk group were randomized to receive either standard prednisone therapy or sirolimus, also known as rapamycin, for the initial treatment of acute GVHD. Prednisone could subsequently be added at the discretion of the treating physician. As the primary endpoint of the study, the goal was to estimate the difference in day 28 treatment rates of complete and partial remissions between the two study arms. A total of 117 patients were evaluable. The trial also assessed treatment efficacy, toxicity, potential steroid-sparing effects of sirolimus, and long-term outcomes. A key secondary endpoint was the rate of day 28 CRPR with a prednisone dose of less than 0.25 mg per kilograms per day. The results of the study were intriguing and should inspire further study. For example, for the primary endpoint, the rates of complete or partial remission from acute GVHD at day 28 were similar for sirolimus, 64.8% versus 73% for prednisone. 
23 patients on the sirolimus arm subsequently received systemic steroids during the first 56 days of follow-up, with a median starting dose of 1 mg per kilogram per day. Reasons for initiating steroids included GVHD persistence or flare-up, pure red cell aplasia due to ABO incompatibility, anemia, and thrombocytopenia. However, steroid exposure was significantly lower in the sirolimus arm. For patients who had CRPR at day 28, only one-third of patients initially treated with sirolimus were taking more than 0.25 mg per kilograms per day of prednisone, compared to two-thirds of patients in the prednisone arm. The study also analyzed whether there were differences between responses to sirolimus or prednisone depending on which organs were involved in GVHD and the type of transplant. Overall, while there were no major differences in these subgroups, the results suggested greater responses for prednisone when acute GVHD occurred following an HLA mismatched transplant. No differences were detected in steroid refractory acute GVHD, disease-free survival, relapse, non-relapse mortality, or overall survival in the two study arms. Importantly, sirolimus was associated with reduced steroid exposure and hyperglycemia, reduced incidence of infections, improved discontinuation of immune suppression, and improved patient-reported quality of life. There was an increased risk for thrombotic microangiopathy in the sirolimus group. This study demonstrates for the first time the feasibility of a clinical and centrally assessed biomarker-based risk stratification for therapy of acute GVHD. For patients with a standard risk profile, sirolimus demonstrated similar overall initial treatment efficacy as prednisone, with approximately two-thirds of patients achieving a durable CRPR with sirolimus alone. Additionally, sirolimus spared steroid exposure and allied toxicity without compromising long-term survival. Sirolimus therapy was also associated with improved patient-reported quality of lives, which the authors note deserves further study, with attention to specific patient and treatment level effects. Limitations of this trial were the small number of pediatric patients and patients who developed acute GVHD following mismatched unrelated or umbilical cord blood HCT. GVHD and the immunosuppression from GVHD prophylaxis are major causes of early post-hematopoietic cell transplantation mortality in standard risk-acute GVHD, and sirolimus treatment may spare toxicities associated with prednisone. Next steps would be to confirm these new findings with a randomized Phase 3 non-inferiority trial, further exploration of additional treatment approaches for standard risk-acute GVHD subgroups is also a remaining need. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening. The Blood Podcast series is made possible in part by support from Servier Pharmaceuticals.